This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado, and I'll be your host for this episode, which I am once again recording from my closet in downtown Memphis. Almost a year ago, on my second interview for this podcast, I talked to Howard Phillips Smith about Unveiling the Muse, the Lost History of Gay Carnival in New Orleans. I invited him back here today to tell us about his follow-up book, Southern Decadence in New Orleans. It was co-written with Frank Perez, the president of the LGBT Plus Archives Project of Louisiana, and published by the Louisiana State University Press in 2018. Southern Decadence in New Orleans provides the first comprehensive historical look at the other important event in the LGBTQ calendar of the Crescent City. Howard Phillips Smith, welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. Good to be back. Yes. How and where are you? I am in Los Angeles at my home, and um, I'm trying to keep my head together with all of this stuff. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're trying to hang in there. I must tell you that it was bittersweet reading your book during this pandemic. It brought back great memories. I was there for the 2015 Southern Decadence uh, Celebration. But I don't know if and when it will happen again or how it will be changed by the current crisis. So therefore, it was bittersweet. We usually start these interviews by asking our guests to introduce themselves. But since we already did that in our previous interviews, if you and folks can check that out, I will leave a link for this interview, uh, for that interview in the blog post for this interview if, for anybody who's interested. So I'll ask you to start by telling us how did this book come about and what's your connection to this story? I know you attended Southern Decadence a few decades ago. Yes. When I lived in New Orleans, which uh, was really during the late 70s, early 80s, um, and I became, um, you know, a a part of the gay community uh, in New Orleans, Southern decadence was just something that happened every year. No one that I knew gave it a second thought. You know, it's it's almost Labor Day. It's going to be Southern decadence. What are you going to wear? What kind of drag are you going to wear? It just all of a sudden it popped up. It was really hot. It's in the you know the hottest part of the summer, and uh, I did attend a couple of uh, early eighties decadence. bar crawls with with uh with everybody but the the wonderful thing was you could just uh 
figure out where it was during the day. It was always the Sunday before Labor Day. Um, and then if you got tired, you could just bow out. It wasn't like you had to stay, you know, the whole time, the whole day. Because it was basically, it was basically in the early 80s was a, a barrage on all the straight bars is what the way I remember it. So you, it was shock, you know, it was visibility, it was shock, it was crazy drag, it was just fun, friends. So that's that's uh, how I knew it. And um, as I was researching Unveiling the Muse and uh, another project that I was working on, uh, uh, another uh, New Orleans history project, I came into contact with someone I knew. I reestablished that contact with uh, Blanche, who was a bartender at the Golden Lantern. The Golden Lantern was the center of Southern decadence uh, at that time during the 80s. His real name was Ed Norton, and he had moved. uh, This was in the early 2000s, and he had moved back to Alabama. This is where he was from. So through some friends in New Orleans, I got back in contact with him and we corresponded and talked on the phone for really a couple of years, just really um, uh, capturing his life in New Orleans and what he had experienced in especially Southern decadence. So that was really interesting to me to see his perspective. And I just kind of put that aside. And then as I was working on Unveiling the Muse, I became more interested in Southern decadence as sort of the, the mirror image of Carnival. It's at the, you know, the other end of the calendar. It's, it's, uh, it's costuming. It's parading. Uh, there's some uh, precedents in Carnival for walking clubs and things like that. Because Southern decadence is really just a uh, costume walking parade throughout the French Quarter. So, so with that kind of um, a renewed interest, I read something that really shocked me. The original founders of Southern Decadence were still alive and living in New Orleans, most of them. And what what my perception of decadence was a completely gay event. It was just, you know, let's get in drag, let's parade around the French Quarter, let's have a good time. However, the founders of Southern Decadence uh, were gay, straight, black, and white. There were a very mixed group of friends who uh, started the, um, the celebration in 1972. So I got in contact with the founders. They lived on Magazine Street, uptown New Orleans. And um, on one of my research trips to New Orleans, I visited them and we really clicked. And I saw the potential for writing about this early history. And it just so happened I had a meeting with uh, Frank Perez that same day in the afternoon. So we were talking and uh, he was researching um john kennedy tool in his letters at the time and we were just talking we uh i just turned to him and i said frank would you be interested in collaborating with me on a southern decadence project i think i can write about the first phase of it the first decade and then the 80s and 90s i think i've got that covered uh, as it segued into this uh gay 
celebration. I don't really know what's been happening in the last 20 years, but you have your finger on the pulse. He uh, knew a lot, uh, many of the grand marshals uh, of Southern decadence. Um, this was probably 2015, 2016 that we uh, started talking about this. So I said, could you write about the third phase of decadence when it really exploded? So that was our, our, the, that was the last puzzle piece. So uh, we felt that we could put together uh, this book with some, you know, uh, accuracy, historic accuracy. And our goal was to uh, really take a, a snapshot of decadence for the book. That was 2016. So we wanted to just talk about everything that was happening with decadence, the parade itself. Um, and then uh, I was lucky enough to enlist the aid of a young photographer to come and actually embed in the entourages for Southern Decadence and photograph the events. So uh, there was a lot of um, grants and, you know, uh, cajoling people to donate to plane tickets for people to come to New Orleans. So, And then uh, uh, to put the icing on the cake, the one of the founders of decadence robert laurent had filmed some of these processions with his super 8 camera they were in bad shape so i i again had to get grant money to restore these films which we've done and luckily because of a strong collection of tulane uh what the maureen block who is the so-called mother of southern decadence and other people who were interested in Tulane, we approached Tulane to donate all of their physical items and this restored uh, film of the early decadence to Tulane and establishing the Southern Decadence Archive at Tulane, which happened. So that's kind of the broad sweep of the book. <laughs> and it's amazing that in the process, right, you created this archive that uh, will be around and folks can uh, check out. That's that's. Wonderful. It was much needed, Isabel. I think uh, uh, as people generate um, items and photographs and posters for the decadence, they need to save it and always think about donating. So I think that's uh, happening, hopefully. That's wonderful. So you, as you mentioned, there is a, uh, the book is, is, has this frame, right? The snapshot uh, of the 2016 uh, celebration. And in that right. section, we follow the four grand marshals as they prepare and participate in the Sunday big event. We right. learn about the days of fundraising that lead to the, the, the festivities. And I was really impressed by the variety of events, right? We have drag shows and crawfish boils, historical tours, and the buy a boy auction. <laughs> Tell us a bit about this fundraising process. Uh, what are they raising funds for? And oh, but first tell uh, folks who might not know it, what is a Grand Marshal? <laughs> well, the Grand Marshal <laughs> is the, um, the king or queen of decadence. They are the ruler of decadence. The Grand Marshal um, is always selected by a previous grand marshal. That's written in stone. That's one of the traditions that cannot be broken. So a grand marshal designates his or her successor, and then that person, it, you know, sometimes there's more than one, but they will get together and decide on the 
theme of decadence and the charities that they will raise money for. Um, so it's a, it's really a big deal in New Orleans uh, gay community who is the Grand Marshal because they are uh, revered and uh, you know there's some you know uh, re- they're they're very respected and uh, so that's very interesting. But um, the fundraising thing is uh, really a new um, a new development, I would say. Really, in the 2000s, um, Grand Marshall started raising money for basically AIDS charities, but uh, other things, uh, raising money for the uh, LGBTQ plus archives project of Louisiana. Um, I know, you know, I got grants from them uh, directly uh, to fund uh, the book. So it's, uh, you know, to restore the film and everything, as I was talking about. So, um the fundraising uh, is definitely for charitable um, a- agencies like No Age, which is the uh, elderly gay um, senior housing project. So, so they're really plugged into benefiting the community. Yeah. Uh, one thing I forgot to ask you earlier, because again, uh, folks listening to this might not uh, know Southern Decadence. Give us a a picture of the scope of this thing, uh, how many people attend and the economic impact of the festivities today? Well, at least until last year. Yeah, for the past, uh, I would say for the past 10 years, uh, it has been a huge, huge deal. 10, 15 years, hundreds of thousands of, it's a worldwide destination now. Hundreds of thousands of primarily gay men come to the city, rent hotel rooms, uh, go to the restaurants and um, uh, participate, uh, you know, by viewing the parade on the Sunday. Now, originally it was just the Sunday uh, walking parade, but now it's it's a whole week of festivity. So you really need to get to New Orleans a week before the Sunday. And then there's all of these uh, bar sponsored uh, block parties and different uh there's a Friday night drag show. This is a tradition now at the Golden Lantern. So there's the scope of what it is builds up. The momentum builds up with these um, uh, different events during the week. And then on Sunday is the big parade, which uh, goes through the French Quarter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Economic impact, uh, millions of dollars, <laughs> millions. Yeah. Uh, this is, this is uh, the, the great statistic that I, that I learned. Carnival is the number one money generator for New Orleans, but there's growing st- statistical, um, uh, you know, proof that decadence may be the second largest for the city. Yes. Wow. Which is mind blowing, mind blowing. <laughs> yes. But it's important. And, <laughs> absolutely. And, and it's, it's even uh, cooler to see that when we, le- uh, as we're going to see how did this thing start, right? But before you you told tell us how the celebration began here in the book, you discussed the origins, and this is a, a section I found really interesting, and the meaning of, of the word decadence, and more specifically, Southern decadence. Can you tell us about that and explain the Tennessee Williams connection? What um, is Southern decadence? Southern decadence um, is a really slippery term because it can be pejorative. It could be nuanced. It decadence in itself is, you know, like, Oh, they're ruined, the ruin of something. So, 
as in my mind, as the South um, was defeated in uh, the Civil War, there um, there is this odd kind of flavor that people reference about the South going through this ruin, like the plantations are in ruin. And um, uh, then it's just this sort of march toward ruin and, and um, self-indulgence, you know? Um, so that's kind of where, uh, where people understand it today. And there's all these sort of, it's almost a cliche reference. You go, Oh, it's Southern Gothic. It's Southern decadence. It's, it's this, uh, um, you know, kind of wallowing in, in uh, amusement, this type of thing. <laughs> That's one take on it. But another take is, uh, you know, it's this um, sort of um, atmosphere that Tennessee Williams plugged into, especially with Streetcar Named Desire, where you have Blanche, who comes from uh, Mississippi, and her family's plantation is in ruin. Again, you have this sense of ruin, and and um, she's... Uh, come to New Orleans as a last resort. And she, you know, dreams of the time when she went to parties and cotillions. And uh, so it's this kind of longing for this kind of opulent lifestyle, I guess. So many writers have tapped into the Southern decadence Mm -hmm. uh, thing. Yeah, I saw, sorry, go ahead. uh, Well, does that make sense? I I mean, it's it's a slippery term, but... um, yeah, with with the event, what I felt was this: this was a critique, but also a camp appropriation of this old South uh, nostalgia, right? Nostalgia, yeah. The camp. <laughs> in fact, the person who really named the whole thing, the Southern Decadence, Robert Laurent, it did uh, use it as sort of a critique in camp. So I think that's a good way to encapsulate it. It's critiquing it. It's but it's like putting it on display and, you know, camp can be very, uh, 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 monolithic, you know, it's like, Oh, this thing is just so great because it's so crazy. Or... Does that make yeah. sense? Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so you have a chapter here that traces this metamorphosis of the French quarter into uh, a tourist destination and you show the role of gay men in that process. Uh, we talked a bit about New Orleans being a gay mecca in the early to mid-20th century in our previous interview. But here you note that while you know Southern decadence didn't begin as an uniquely gay event, it was born during a transitional period both for the gay community and for the French Quarter. Can you explain that transition and tell us what was gay New Orleans like when Southern Decadence started, and I'm talking here about the late 60s and and early 70s, just to contextualize this. Well, that's a very interesting time, uh, especially for the French Quarter. I think this is where um, people started thinking of New Orleans as a a tourist destination. Oh, I want to go to New Orleans and spend the weekend or go taste some of the uh, interesting food there or um, you know, maybe tour the plantation. So all of this kind of propaganda had been promulgated, you know, decades before that, especially during the fifties. But I think people really started coming to new Orleans in the seventies and, um, the gay scene in new Orleans in the sixties and seventies was very much underground. 
you had the Carnival Cruise, who, um, you know, were well-established at this point, but they were not openly visible to the population of the tourists when they came to town. So this was, this was still kind of under wraps. Now, you did have um, the gay bars in the French Quarter, the gay and lesbian bars. There were a lot of lesbian bars at this time. Um, so that was another destination for the queer community uh, outside of New Orleans. But that was slowly building up. So it wasn't anything overt at that time. And um, at the time that Southern Decadence was the had started, there was um, – uh, this core group of people who had really moved back to New Orleans, I think, because um, uh, uh, guys from Lafayette, from Baton Rouge, even from Chicago and New York, uh, they came back to New Orleans. They were very close friends. And so they started um, uh, doing, you know, bar hopping and uh, playing cards and that type of thing. So that's kind of how decadence got started. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, as uh, like you, I was surprised to find uh, that in its inception, this was not uh, exactly a gay or a queer event, but it was a celebration that brought together a group of misfits, right, uh, from the product of the 1960s and 70s uh, counterculture, I would say, folks who felt like outcasts. Who were these people and how did they meet the, the original decadence? Well, this was this was such a, a surprise, I think, for a lot of people because um, nine times out of ten, when you talk to someone in New Orleans in the gay community, it's like, "Oh, decadence is gay. It's always been gay." But but that's why this book is so important, I think, because um, you had this group of friends, like I was saying, and they um, some of them had met at a college in Lafayette, uh, Baton Rouge. Um, it was uh, sort of this end of the hippie culture. Uh, They were interested in music and film and that type of thing. Um, And when these friends got together and there was a, uh, some of them had another friend that might be uh, good for the group, they would bring them into the group and and they became very, uh, very close is, is my understanding. And, and they're all still close today. That's, uh, um, that's what started all of this. And, uh, I guess by chance. Um, well, let's let's go to the sh- uh, 1972 to Chicago. This was early in the year when um, one of their uh, uh, members was graduating from college in Chicago. So a lot of the friends went to Chicago, and um, some other friends tagged along, and they had such a great time in Chicago uh, that when several of them moved to New Orleans, they just wanted to stay together. So they moved to New Orleans and continued that friendship. And um, they would um, uh, get together weekly to play cards or to uh, go to bars in the French Quarter. But they were always this. There was this core group of people, and they they were very witty and camp and sarcastic and that type of thing. So they they really enjoyed just um, uh, the banter and and going out and, and and doing that type of thing in the French Quarter. And so we have we have that set up already for 1972 when um, one of the friends, Michael uh, Evers, 
and his uh, partner, uh, David Randolph, well, David Randolph had a house in the in Treme. A lot of gay men would buy houses in Treme and uh, fix them up, that type of thing. So they moved in together in, Tre- in Treme, and um, David Randolph's father died. He had a business up north, so he had to go take care of that. So every Michael Evers said, well, let's all get together. Let's throw a party at uh, Belle Reeve is what they call their house, of course, with the Tennessee Williams connection. So they did. They threw this party and um, Robert Laurent did this really great invitation and sent it out to their core friends. And so they got together and there was um, a, a, a garden out back and it was very private. So so they had they could, you know, play music and drink and do drugs and that type of thing. So two weeks later, Michael Ivers had to go to uh, join David. Um, and that left um, the house in Treme, Belle Reve, open for people to rent. So it, it really became a flop house. If France didn't have a lot of money, they could stay there. And so there was like, several people living there at one time. So you have this uh, kind of communal atmosphere um, going on until 1973. And that's when um, Robert Laurent, again, who I feel is the mastermind behind, (laughs) behind this whole thing, said, oh, we love this Metasis bar. Several friends had discovered Metasis bar, which was next to the their little grocery store and it was just a hole in the wall but it was very cheap booze and they liked the atmosphere there it was very decadent you know and so they just decided so the invitation went out for southern decadence again um oh and the reason it's on sunday is because they felt that they could drink and get really drunk and have fun and then they had monday to recover so it's always about recovery time <laughs> so he said well let's let's get in costume. What do you, what do you guys think about getting in costume and going to the bar? And then let's all walk back to Belle Reve and have our party. So they started doing that and they, that was a big success. And, um, I don't think there were a lot of drag Queens at this point. They were still just kind of, um, and here, here's the kind of fun thing. Uh, even the straight men in the group would like just put on a dress and just kind of walk around just in any kind of costume. So it was all about costume. So 1974, when the invitations went out for Southern decadence, um, uh, Fred, Frederick Wright, uh, this uh, friend of theirs whom they all adored was named grand marshal. Well, this was news to Frederick Wright. He did he said, Oh my God, I, what is this grand marshal? I don't know what this is. So they said, well, you're, you're the guy. You're going to lead the parade and everything. So he took this and just ran with it, with uh, costume, and uh, you have to have the whistle. That's the uh, start of the whistle blowing to start the decadence parade. And, you know, each year a new grand marshal would be chosen. And um, probably by 74, 75, David Randolph sold. Belle Reve. So that was out. That was no longer the destination. And the party became the parade. 
So they would meet at Matassas and then just do bar hopping for the rest of the day. And by that time, 75, the, uh, well, both Fred Wright and uh, Jerome, uh, Miss Pickle was the uh, Grand Marshal in 75. Uh, there were, there were a lot of drag queens associated with, uh, Southern decadence. So, and again, the grand marshal determined the route that would be taken, uh, you know, which bars to, uh, visit throughout the day. Yeah, that was something that I, I uh, that I enjoyed as you were talking about costuming and all that, because as you know, I'm really interested in the material culture of celebrations. Mm-hmm. So this idea of the costumes and and clothes as a form of defiance, there are a couple of examples that I uh, uh, was uh, found really interesting. First is that, of course, except for Fat Tuesday or Shrove Tuesday, it was illegal, right, to appear in drag in the streets of New Orleans by that time. And I I learned exactly. here that the first yeah the first Grand Marshal was a black gay man parading as Uncle Sam, that I loved. And well, yeah. <laughs> yes, but a uh, side note, I love that um, invitation and I'll try to add it to the blog post so that folks can um, see it as well. I'll ask yeah, the you invitation, yes. The invitations, we're very lucky that uh, Robert and his friends saved all of these invitations. Uh, they're just uh, incredible documents, just uh, how, um, how this whole thing came about and what the what the people saw. I mean, it's a way to get people excited. These invitations were so camp and so fun. Uh, For example, Miss Pickles invitation was Chris Owens, who is a a bourbon street entertainer was standing on top of the Superdome. That was the year the Superdome opened. So she's like a, um, you know, burlesque Godzilla on top of the Superdome. That was the invitation. But then Jerome said, oh, well, I've got to go in drag as Chris Owens. So he was Chris Owens in drag as the Grand Marshal. But we, from our perspective, it's just you don't get the impact like you were saying. Like this was daring to be out in the streets in drag during the day. Mm-hmm. And this and, isn't and drag it's not in a Gras. bar. And it's not Mardi Gras. It's, you're not in drag performing at a bar, which, you know, that, that's pretty okay. You know, you could get away with it. There were drag bars. That was entertainment. But this was like transgression in the street, visible mm-hmm. to the public. So the police didn't know what to think of this. I think they were just shocked. <laughs> so they didn't do anything. But this was like, this was breaking, chipping away at this Jim Crow, um, uh, immoral uh, presentation, your uh, gender presentation in public. This was chipping away at it because straight men were wearing dresses and one guy went as Indira Gandhi. I mean, it's just so camp, so fun. They were having fun. They knew it was fun. Mm -hmm. But not everybody was on board, right? In 1977, the religious conservatives already started protesting. How was that? Well, um, you know, um, they kept going. They just kept going. I think um, anytime you're visible like that, um, you know, transgressive visibility, <laughs> you're going to have um, the religious right coming out for you. So mm-hmm. I think it wasn't coordinated. It wasn't powerful enough to do anything at that time. But yeah, um, 
I think because right, this was just fine, a right. It's already uh, as early as like seventy-seven. Folks are yeah. already starting to complain well, about seventy-seven. Seventy-seven was uh, you know was Anita Bryant. There was a big backlash. So mm-hmm. um, anything like that. So um, I'm just thinking that since this was such a you know this was not an easy target. The Southern decadence walking parade at this time was not an easy target because the the route was always different. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't, they didn't really know where uh, the parade was going to be. So it was really hard to coordinate a lot of people to, to protest. So that was the strength of this kind of um, um, guerrilla parading at, the, at this point. <laughs> you see what I mean? Yeah. So the, 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 you, ha, you, you talk then about the process of the gaying of decadence. And you have here 1980 as an important turning point. The original founders uh, start withdrawing from the organization, and they're being replaced by this uh, rising gay and lesbian community. How did that happen? And uh, I w- uh, was uh, am interested in learning a little bit more about how drag becomes central to the parade's identity. Yeah, this is this is so interesting. I've been thinking about this. I was um, um, especially. Uh, interested in why gay visibility was so um, was really powerful during the eighties. And I think the Southern decadence had something to do with it. I think that really spurred a lot of people who, you know, off and on participated in Southern decadence to come out of the closet and be more visible during the year. So let's look at 1980. 1980 was huge for Southern decadence. I, don't have the official number for the participants, but it was hundreds. Uh, you know, people got the invitation, they invited their friends. So it had really built up this momentum. Tom Tippin was the grand marshal. He's the brother of Maureen Block. And um, uh, he, he's straight. And he, um, you know, he had a, a costume. He was the uh, King of Id from the cartoon uh, cartoon strip, and uh, everyone met at Matassas Bar, and they were uh, uh, he was leading them around the French Quarter. They ended up at Jackson Square. Now, this is when part of the group wanted to go to Frenchman Street, and then part of the group wanted to go with uh, the Grand Marshal to uh, some of the Decatur Street bars, some of the strip bars. So this, there was a big um, fight, let's say. There was a big uh, argument, and most of the people uh, went to Frenchman Street, and the Grand Marshal was left kind of holding the bag. So it, it left a sour taste in their mouth. So the next year, they just didn't want to participate in Southern decadence anymore. It's like that, um, that whole energy had dissipated with, uh, you know, with the, um, with the schism, let's say in 1980. And, uh, some of the core people had moved uptown. Maureen had started teaching at Tulane. Um, uh, Robert Laurent had a, an accident. So he was in the hospital. It's like they couldn't participate by, it's almost by chance, you know, fate, decreed that they sort of focus more on their on their uh, personal lives instead of so much energy to Southern decadence. 
But one of the uh, core people um, was gay, Robert King, and he frequented the Golden Lantern. Now, the Golden Lantern was the uh, sort of the end point to decadence. There was a buffet. If you made it through the deck, the whole day for decadence, there was a buffet waiting at the Golden Lantern with more booze, right? <laughs> so, um, so he talked to some of his friends at the Golden Lantern and said, you know, let's keep going with this. So the first couple of years in the eighties was, it was, it went back to being very small affair. Now at the Golden Lantern, you had Blanche, you had Blanche, who was a bartender there. And um, he was a very interesting person. That's why I spent so much time interviewing him and uh, kind of reconnecting with him. He had a uh, drag group at the Golden Lantern called the Demented Women. And this was uh, this wasn't a drag group that tried to impersonate, do the female impersonation. You know, like that's more... I want to be as perfect a woman, the illusion of a woman as possible. This was called what we call terror drag and gender fuck drag where, you know, you dress up in uh, combat boots and you have a ratchet wig and you have crazy makeup and you're fierce, you know, you, you're in people's faces and you do shows and that's this kind of new trend of drag at the time. It's more of a personal statement instead of female impersonation. So this is this transition to what we see today, I feel where the drag was, you know, you have this core sensibility and then you build on that. So with Blanche's influence at the Golden Lantern, uh, it, the, and now that, oh, and Matessa's bar had closed too in 1980, after 1980. So the Golden Lantern became the center of, of Southern decadence. Everyone met at the Golden Lantern and this is where drag began to dominate. This is what I saw when I lived in New Orleans. Drag dominated Southern decadence. It wasn't that big again. So when you uh, think about the first decade, it kept getting bigger. There's a lot of people at 1980. It got smaller, and then the momentum started to build again. As a just really a gay, uh, uh, exclusively gay event. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it? <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Mm-hmm. It, people often refer to Southern decadence as the gay Mardi Gras, and you sort of started talking about that a while ago. But what is the relation between Southern decadence season and Mardi Gras season? Are the crews involved? And what would be the difference between Carnival and Southern decadence? There have been grand marshals that were also uh, involved in the, the gay crews. Um, that's kind of the overlap. Um, especially when you get into the late eighties. Um, the, um, I think there was more of an overlap uh, with just people attending Southern decadence. I know one of the grand marshals, Michael Hickerson, uh, in the mid eighties was, um, heavily involved in, in gay crews. And he was a black man who tried to start a gay crew in the eighties 
and he succeeded in the 90s. And, but he was involved with Amon Ra. He uh, was, uh, you know, very important. So that's kind of the connection. But it's, you know, it's the other end of the calendar. Um, and a, a connection, there's, there's a connection with traditional carnival, too, because there are walking clubs during the carnival season. And this, there's a long tradition of that. Uh, they're usually straight men. Um, historically, that would uh, walk with the parade, like with Comus or Rex. And then um, in the late 60s, early 70s, you had um, the Society of St. Anne, which was a mixed group. So this could have had an influence on Southern decadence, uh, where uh, in the Marigny, which is adjacent to the French Quarter, uh, the parade would this walking parade of Saint Anne would start on Mardi Gras Day, early Mardi Gras Day, and it would gain momentum as it moved toward Canal Street for the Rex Parade. And during AIDS, uh, friends and loved ones who had died, their ashes would be then taken and scattered in the Mississippi River. So it was a ritualistic. It became a very ritual cleansing type uh, healing uh, walking parade. So the president of walking parade. Uh, uh, nowadays, we have walking parades with uh, women um, centered around the French Quarter. And there's a nice book, uh, Downtown Mardi Gras, that uh, focuses on these new walking clubs. So walking clubs uh, were uh, and are still very important for New Orleans uh, celebrations. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry? No, just as you, you were mentioning, right, that and, and you note here that the AIDS crisis hit just as Southern Decadence was becoming a more uh, gay or queer-centric event. And this is something that you mentioned in both of your books, is how despite this devastation, the epidemic also brings community together. So how are these informal ways of organizing uh, as, as a Mardi Gras crew or through Southern Decadence, how have they served as a means of community building and mutual aid? Yeah, this is a really interesting point because you have the crews who, uh, the gay crews who are already organized in the 80s. And then you have the Southern Decadence event, which um, was really used to uh, disseminate information. And um, it was part of uh, healing the community. So the the epidemic, even though uh, it was uh, devastating, there were these groups that were already in place to, to help raise money and combat AIDS um, really early on. So I think there's a, um, a, a really good um, precedent here, a really good um, area here for someone to do research to see how these groups affected the AIDS crisis in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. So the next important turning point uh, that you signal here is 1997, is when after 25 years of very spontaneous revelry, the organizers decide to officialize the event. Can you explain that shift? This is very interesting, and it's still controversial because there are the Southern decadence purists who want a grand marshal to just go bar hopping. That's the tradition. And believe me, these traditions in New Orleans are sometimes they're sacrosanct. But what happened, what's starting to happen in the 90s is uh, it's just getting too big. 
the parade is hundreds and thousands of people now. So in 97, the Grand Marshal was approached by Larry Bagneris, who worked for the city, and uh, sort of the uh, unofficial gay liaison with the, with the city officials, and said, you know, we've got we've to get um, uh, ourselves together on this and uh, get a permit where we can have the city acknowledge this as a, a real event, plus have the police to um, safeguard the event and have, you know, services from the city like toilets uh, and things like that, because it had really gotten big. So this was a, a really big deal. So the Grand Marshal, Miss Love, and Larry met with uh, the mayor in the mayor's committee, and they succeeded in getting a permit. And that's where it's the event became more official. So that was a big turning point. So um, not everyone agreed with that. This was very tough to even even uh, get a consensus on this. But it did happen. And it, I think it really saved decadence. Because otherwise, I think it would have just uh, gotten out of control. And uh, perhaps, you know, the police would have uh, had to do something to uh, keep order. So... Um, I'm thinking this was a really smart move. Uh, I, I really have to say this ensured the um, the continuation of Southern decadence. Yeah, but the, the attacks from the religious groups also increased in that period, right? There were all these <coughs> scandals going on. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, let me let me just mention that another factor in the '90s that um, <laughs> that helped to explode Southern decadence was the internet. Yes. Uh, sometimes we don't think about how important this has been in in um, in disseminating all of this information. Uh, a key person, well, persons involved in in decadence, um, and uh, were uh, Rip and Marsha Naquin Delane. Now, they published the Ambush magazine, which was a, a queer community magazine, very successful in New Orleans. Um, they originally came from Baton Rouge, and they moved to New Orleans and uh, started Ambush magazine. And early on, in the early 90s, I mean the mid-90s, late 90s, they bought up all these dot-coms, like southerndecadence.com, New Orleans, gayneworleans.com, all these things, and put out information. So right away, when someone would search on Gay New Orleans, you would get the Southern Decadence Festival is coming up. So this really uh, added to all these people that are coming to the city. So um, with this increase in visibility, I mean, it, it, it was just really a lot of people by the early 2000s. You have the religious right looking at decadence and um, trying to figure out how they can uh, stop it, quite honestly. There was um, a religious figure um, on the West Bank in Marrero named Grant Storm. And quite honestly, I think he used this as a, a way for uh, to get personal publicity in all of this, but he made it his, um, you know, his uh, crusade to, to stop decadence. So in 2002, he 
got some of his uh, uh, churchgoers to protest Southern decadence, you know, and to complain to the mayor and, and the city and things like that. Well, not much happened. In 2003, he decided to videotape some of the goings-on uh, in the French Quarter. Um, and this this was really interesting. He did videotape, he went into bars and videotaped some of the, the films that were shown there and presented this to the mayor. And he succeeded in getting um, a state rep state representative martini was his name to back him and say oh we just this is horrible you know new and this representative uh, martini said oh new orleans just is such a cesspit it's immoral they deserve all the murders and everything they get so th- this is a huge um reaction to southern decadence but it was not successful and i'll i'll outline that here um so they go to the mayor and say, you know, we've got to shut this down. We've got to stop this. And the mayor said, you know, we have decadence under control. It's fine. And besides, it generates so much money for the city. Yes. We want to keep it. We are not getting rid of it. Um, they weren't crazy. You know, they weren't uh, uh, fanatics about this. So... Um, What's Listen, interesting about- I just love the fact that this pious man is going around uh, in New Orleans and, and you know, corners and uh, street corners and gay bars and basically filming amateur porn. So <laughs> that was that was strange. Well, well, you know, they did. Uh, uh, he and his followers did do physical demonstrations in the French Quarter in 2003. Mm-hmm. But the police, the police kept everything under control. And Rip and Marsha. Um, they knew what was going on and they, they, you know, they chimed into this to the mayor. They said, you know, we have out of towners that come in and they just go crazy. Um, we can't help that, but our people here are solid. You know, we have no problems with them. So they formed a, a, a vigilante group of, of, uh, guy, gay guys that would go around. They were in t-shirts. They were designated as a, you know, a, a um, um, information group and they would go around telling people oh martini succeeded in getting the the laws toughened for you know a public sex that type of thing mm-hmm. so they they this this vigilante group would go around handing out uh handouts and telling people you know we can't uh do anything improper because you know there's consequences and just just have a good time that type of thing so they also when the this is great when the protesters were walking through the streets of the french quarter Rip and Marsha had people strategically placed on balconies with glitter bags and they would throw glitter on everyone. So again, it's this kind of camp solution to um, attack, (laughs) attack these protesters, which, you know, instead of violence, they, they used um, camp and satire and fun, you know, to dissipate all this hatred, you know? Mm -hmm. So that was really interesting. Um, During my research, I have to point this out. Uh, I read a lot of letters to the editor of the Times-Picayune newspaper, and 99% of them were in support of decadence. These were people that lived in the French Quarter who were residents, and one uh, letter in particular was uh, uh, was so poignant. 
the letter stated, uh, this past weekend, I, I couldn't believe the horrible sights, the immoral sights that I was seeing on Bourbon Street, you know. And, you know, you would think that they were talking about Southern Dickens. It says, no, it wasn't second, uh, Southern Decadence. It was all of the women showing their breasts and men pulling their pants down on Bourbon Street, which happens almost every weekend. He said, mm-hmm. why aren't you focusing on this, which happens all the time, instead of two or three days um, of the year when everyone knows that Southern decadence and gay men are acting dec- decadently. So, you know, there's a hypocrisy, homophobia. They really called it out. So mm-hmm. the community supported Southern decadence, too. So I really have to point that out, which, um, you know, enabled the the mayor to just say, no, we, we have to, uh, we want to keep this, but you know, it has to be with the permit and everything. Yeah. So the permit, I think with this attack on the religious right, with the city involvement helped to save Southern decadence. So the future of Southern decadence, uh, is of course uncertain, uh, just as our future, everyone's future is, uh, right, right now. But what would you say is the role or the importance of Southern decadence today for the city of New Orleans? Well, decadence is uh, a way for the queer community in New Orleans to express itself. It is the gay Mardi Gras. It, um, uh, uh, in the absence of lesbian bars, there, there aren't any lesbian bars anymore, and there used to be a lot. Um, now the lesbians are participating in decadence with some of their own events. So I think that Southern decadence might be a, desti- a destination for the lesbian community. It's already happening. There's like decadence, they're calling it. So I'm really excited about that. I think um, uh, there was even a transgender grand marshal recently. So I think there's room for the transgender community. I think... Um, that it's a time for the city to focus on the queer community and to uplift the queer community and for the queer community to celebrate all of its, um, you know, successes. So um, I hope it comes back strong. I don't see why it wouldn't. There's a lot of support with it. Um, I think it's, I think it's uh, here to stay. Uh, It I'm thinking it may morph and change into something a little different, though. It may not be as big, but uh, still having these grand marshals and uh, visibility in the community, I think. So I will conclude uh, this this section of the interview with a question, well, a similar question as the one I concluded our previous interview which is what was lost, right? Because we, we see uh, a lot of gains with uh, the, the mainstreaming of, of Southern Decadence becoming such an important staple in the city's calendar. But what was lost when Southern Decadence became uh, mainstream? Well, I think this sort of cutting-edge, avant-garde, um, create, creative spark, um, the sort of underground, you know, what can I do that would be the most outrageous? It's, it's definitely more homogenized. I mean, um, the, uh, costumes are, you know, they're more carnivalesque. 
um, I think maybe this creative spark, I think that's why some of the traditionalists like this sort of um, um, chaotic, a more chaotic Southern decadence, like we don't really know where we're going to end up, which bar we're going to end up. And now there's the parade, which is always very, uh, it's very well attended, but you know, some people um, think that it's too formulaic. I'm being very critical. I, I think it's fantastic, but I think that maybe some of this, um, if we can resurrect some of this uh, cutting edge ideas for decadence, I think that would serve it well. Well, before we go, can you tell us about your new upcoming book and when can we expect it? Um, I'm looking forward to that. So. Well, I'm very excited about uh, this upcoming book. It's called A Sojourn in Paradise, Jack Robinson in 1950s New Orleans. When I was researching uh, my carnival book, uh, a, a major component of my research was the Jack Robinson archive in Memphis. And this was a photographer who lived in New Orleans in the late 40s, early 50s, was part of the, the uh, underground artistic culture of that time, including the gay culture. I eventually moved to New York and became a fashion photographer, pretty well known at the time. Um, and he retired, well, he came back to Memphis um, to um, help his mother. I think she was, she was ill. But he gave up his big career working for Vogue and Deanna Vreeland, um, and he started working in stained glass design. And all of these uh, negatives and photographs that he took were sort of um, hidden away in his apartment in Memphis. But when he died, his employer, who uh, uh, became his, um, his executor, discovered all of these negatives and... Um, especially the ones in New York, the fashion ones. And uh, in uh, his will, Jack Robinson uh, asked him to uh, publish the images and have exhibitions and so forth. Well, the New Orleans ones um, were sort of um, hidden away as well. And when those started coming to light, they really uh, became a time capsule of that time period. So, the book, very briefly, is was uh, I wanted to show the photographs as best as possible. Very high quality printing. So there's a hundred plates to the book, but my publisher um, wanted me to expand the scope of the book and talk about the artistic uh, community, the gay community at this time. Uh, and uh, it just uh, there's there's really a a really interesting brief time period in the early 50s when um, the artistic community flourished, the gay community flourished, and of course this helped to found the gay crews in the late 50s. So it's it's a very important uh, snapshot of New Orleans uh, gay culture, gay history, and the overall history in general because there's a there's a component of of um, uh, the the art community at that time too, which you know I feel New Orleans has been overlooked with uh, especially the gay community, but with the artistic community. And hopefully this book will um, bring all of this information out on a national, international level and show New Orleans for what it is. It's, it's very important culturally during this time. 
Yes, I, I'm. Uh, I've been waiting for this book for for a while now, and I hope I can come to you know uh, if you do. Uh, uh, I would. I was gonna say a premiere, but uh, you know, a book event here in Memphis. Uh, I'll definitely be there. Well, um, we are planning. Yes, we are planning at the archive, but it, of course it's postponed. I just wanted to. Yes. Our thank you so much for coming back to the podcast. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I just spoke to Howard Philip Smith about his book, Southern Decadence in New Orleans. It was co-written with Frank Pettis and published by the Louisiana State University Press in 2018. I'm Isabel Machado, and until next time.